Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Sean Pattenden. Who's Zooming whom? Ava Glass is a former civil servant with the highest security clearance bar one. She has also seen enough of the inner workings of espionage to ensure that she will always be fascinated by spies. Having spent over a decade training future spooks for the British government, one of her jobs included teaching MI5 and MI6 operatives how to use social media alongside running communications for the counter-terrorism division. She has just published her first novel, The Chase, which happens to be about spies. Welcome, Ava, to The Bunker. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, you have been vetted to almost the highest level of government security clearance. So, what on earth is that? And am I even allowed to talk to you? (laughs) You can definitely talk to me. Um, And in fact, I'm probably the safest person to talk to, given my security clearance. Um, Basically, there are, or there were when I was in government, there were five levels of security clearance, I imagine there are even more now. So if you go into government and say you're working in a a coffee shop in the foreign office, they'll security clear you to the lowest level. And then it depends on what information you're likely to have access to the higher they go. So the the highest level is top secret. Mm -hmm. That takes at least a year Mm -hmm. to get through it. You were going to say a decade, a year. (laughs) That's nothing. (laughs) And I'm one level below, I was one level below that, although they say it's for life, so I imagine I still am. So yeah, that just meant I don't know because the way they security clear you is a state secret. So all I know is you give them everything they ask for, every address you've lived at in the last five years, bank account information, credit card information, and then they go away for six weeks and they either come back and give you your pass or they don't. Right. So that is to secure that you're not a double agent. Is that right? That's just to make sure you are who you say you are. And yes, that money's not appearing in your account from perhaps, for example, Iran. You know, like they're they're looking for to make sure that everything looks logical. If they find something illogical, they'll ask you, why do you have 10,000 pounds from, you know, (laughs) Kuwait sitting in your account when otherwise, you know, you've had this normal career. And to clarify, who is they? They, um, well, it's it's the security office mm-hmm. for the government, which, generally speaking, is is usually MI5. Cool. Uh, so I'm quaking in my boots just in case anything happens, right? <laughs> <laughs> How has your former job then informed this book? This is your first fiction, am I right? Yes, it is. And I suppose the main input from it was that I learned what spies look like and sort of how they act, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So I know not to put them in tuxedos and give them a martini. I know that they are, um, the whole point of a spy is to melt into a crowd. And so they are whatever they need to be in that moment. So if one worked here, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, she would probably wear a t-shirt for perhaps an unusual independent art collective. And (laughs) You're talking about my Bruno (laughs) t-shirt. She might dye her hair a really cool shade of blonde and she would be, you would never... It's a bit like a ticket inspector. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Very, very good. What's the book centred around and why write a fiction? Mm. Well, writing nonfiction about spies is... Is is... Is that too dangerous? (laughs) I don't think that... I'd get maybe very, very thin volume. Um, Well, okay, so... Technically speaking, mm-hmm. I have written books before under another name. Ava Glass is not my real name. I was going to ask, Ava. That's a, such a perfect name that maybe it might not have been born with it. <laughs> Too good to be true. It is indeed. So I, I wrote some crime novels mm-hmm. um, when I first left my job working for the government. And um, 
I never read about spies, in part because I was afraid of revealing something I shouldn't, and also because I didn't have a hook. It's a really hard genre to step into. Mm-hmm. It, if you look at what's written in spy fiction, it is extremely complex, tangly, very well thought out. And, and there's always a hook to that first book. And I just didn't have a hook. You can't just write about a spy. Mm-hmm. Something needs to happen to that spy. Mm-hmm. And because it didn't come to me and because I was too close to it. So I wrote crime for a while. And I sort of had crosswords, and this was during the first lockdown, actually. Oh. And it was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to write any more at all? Maybe I'll go write a movie and become famous. You know how you do when you're locked down and, <laughs> and you don't have a project. And then I saw Speed. You know the film Speed? Yes. With Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, yes. of all films. And this is yes, the most... I was going to say, inspiration I point. I Come with me on this journey. Okay. So, <laughs> I haven't seen it in a really long time. It was on really late at night, yeah. and I just watched it. And I was... It's good, right? And it's fast. It's super pacey. And it has this amazing hook, which is that the bus that they're on cannot go below 50 miles an hour or it will blow up. There's Mm -hmm. a bomb on it. And it's tied in to the speed of the bus. Mm -hmm. Genius. Drives me crazy. I wish I'd thought of it. It's Mm. so clever because the writer doesn't have to do anything. The plot carries the movie. And so I started thinking if it were done today, because it's 97, 98, it's Mm. old, um, I gender flip it. And it would be more interesting if the woman's saving the man, right? Because yeah. then you have these zeitgeisty things happening. The the sort of the relationship is different. It's 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 flexed, and um and I couldn't use a bus because it's taken, which is <laughs> annoying. Yeah. Um, but then I started thinking of my spies. What if it was a spy instead of cops? And what if the bomb was the person she was trying to rescue? The mm-hmm. Skripal attack in Salisbury had just happened a couple of years before, and it was in my mind where this was ancient revenge. He had given all his secrets long ago. Mm. This was cold revenge. And I found that fascinating. A, that the ex-Russian spy was here, that he was in Salisbury of all places, you know, and that he was living this utterly normal life and that Russia came for him all the same. So I thought about it. What if he'd had kids here? Because his daughter was with him. But what if his daughter had been born here and had never lived anywhere but Britain? Mm. And so I based my main character on that idea. A very British child of Russian people who finds himself caught up in his parents' war. Um, And the woman who's trying to save him, who's a secret agent. And they have to get across London before dawn because the CCTV cameras have been hacked mm-hmm. and the facial recognition software works better in the daylight. Mm-hmm. So she thinks if she doesn't get him across the city quickly, then they don't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. And we see what happens as the uh, book continues. So we have emergency codes. We have invisibility as a spy's greatest asset, to quote from the book. Documents are stamped top secret in it. It starts with these solid tropes about the secret services. How do you flip that as a novelist? It's tricky, isn't it? I mean, for one thing, you make your main character female. There are vanishingly few female spies um, in fiction, Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly in written fiction. There's more on television than there are in books. And I can't understand why, because I, for one, like reading about spies of all backgrounds. And (laughs) so starting there and also playing around with technology. So because she has to go dark, which means she can't use a phone, Mm -hmm. her phone, she can't Mm -hmm. use... um, any of the cards, any of the sort of credit cards that she's given by the government, she has to go to cash and she has to basically use her wits. She can't take a taxi. She can't use a bus. So she's cut off from the technology mm. that is being used to follow her. So the, the Russians have the cameras. So they have all the tech. Mm. They have facial recognition software. Mm. She has her feet and her mind. So you talk about in media representation about the amount of women mm. we see as spies. In the real world, what's the 
proportion of women to men. No, they don't release this information, but I, you know, like there's no stats. You trained these guys. <laughs> you must have some sort of on-the-ground yeah. stats. I would say that of the people I met who I believe to be spies, because even the fact of being a spy is a secret. They could never say to me. Mm. They could only sort of... Yeah. Give me that wink, you know, if I... <laughs> it's if we, quite obvious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, if we're in the building and I'm mm. like, but how do you know, it? Mm. you know, right. the wink? Um, because they can't say it. But yeah. of those I believe to have been spies, about 40% were women. And in fact, the first spy I ever met, the one who fooled me comprehensively, was a 28-year-old woman. How did she fool you? In her non-spiness? Well, it was because of my security clearance, you see. Right. Passed all the paper security clearance. And then I and I got into the office, but they wouldn't... I didn't meet the people from counterterrorism who mm. I was going to be working with. Mm. For weeks, they kept giving me sort of make work of things that had nothing to do with what they'd hired me to do. And when I asked about it, yeah. and I'm like, why am I doing alcohol guidelines when you hired me specifically <laughs> to do counterterrorism communications? They would say, the person who needs to brief you isn't available. For weeks. And it didn't make sense. But at the same time, it's a huge bureaucracy. And I, they were letting me come back in every day. Yeah. It was during that time, I was in the kitchen making a cup of tea. And I met a young woman who was also there at the same time making a cup of tea. She's quite very friendly, got to chatting the way you do over mm. the milk. She was new. She said she worked in legal department. The legal mm. department is massive. Mm -hmm. So that seemed perfectly logical. She was very smart. Um, I, I didn't see anything not to like. She asked where some things were. And I was telling her about the coffee shop downstairs. And we said, why don't we go get a cup of coffee tomorrow or something? And I'll tell you about the things in the building. Looking yeah. back, this is very ironic. So I went down and we had the coffee and then we kind of hung out. We became office buddies. Yeah. She was extremely curious about my background, very asked lots of you know, interesting questions. She wanted to know my family, how I ended up in the UK because I grew up in the US, how this all came to be, how I, you know, why I'd left my last job for this one. And then she disappeared. She absolutely disappeared. After three weeks, she was gone. Her email was gone. Her phone number, her landline phone number just went to someone else. And that's not how it works. Everything takes a really long time yeah. in that bureaucracy. Yeah. And I realized, or at least... It just occurred to me, I think I met my first spy. And after that, the counterterrorism people appeared and the work began. Wow. So I think that's how they security clear you to a high level. I see. It's all starting to fall into place. Why is London the centre of the global spy network? Apparently it is. It has always been, hasn't it? The way it mm. sits between North America mm. and the East, mm. its geographic location, and also its willingness to play that role. To what do you mean willingness? Then? I mean, I don't think Britain objects to being this sort of uh, dipl diplomatic, sort of a, a crunch point for the world. It always mm. has been. I mean, it, it moves, it shifts towards America, towards Brussels, Um from time to time, but Britain always thinks meet here. There's a there's a convergence. MI6 and MI5, this has always been a spy country, a country very good. Mm. It virtually invented modern spying when MI6 was created just before First, mm. First World War. It created what we now understand to be um, the spy network, although it did it because Russia, because Germany was doing it at the same time. So it was like happening mm. in two places. One's Britain was really good at it. Mm. And I think because of that, it just became this place. The Americans are very active here. And as long as the Americans are active here, the Russians are going to be active here. And if the Americans and the Russians are active here, then Europe's going to be active here. And Britain has to be active here because it's, it's our country. Yes. So once you see that, London is a city of spies and Britain is a nation crawling with them.
So in the modern age, um, we have cybersecurity, which is a broad term for, I imagine, all sorts of ways in which you can be looked at and also look at other people. In 2014, Edward Snowden suggested that the USA National Security Agency and GCHQ used Angry Birds and other leaky apps to collect information about smartphone users. Is that true? Is that what, you know, if we're playing Candy Crush or something, someone's actually garnering a lot of information about you and where you've gone? What the spies told me when I was trying to get them to use, um, yes, say, course, social, media social media and all of that, yeah. they wouldn't touch it, not with a barge pole. Why? And because what eventually, well, the first it was just, like I would give these long presentations on how they could use it to speak directly to the public mm-hmm. and to make them feel safer. That was my job. I was comms. Mm. I was there to teach them just to, just to talk to people so that this was after the 7-7 bombings. The mm-hmm. tensions were unbelievably high. I wouldn't take the tube and I worked for the home office. You know, everybody was, was on edge. Mm. Mm. Working at the home office taught me that I didn't have to be so scared because I could mm. see what they were doing and how hard they were working to stop attacks from happening before they could possibly happen. They had this mm-hmm. program called Prevent, and it was brilliant. I still look back on that in awe. Mm-hmm. These are smart people working their butts off. But nobody knows. Mm-hmm. They don't tell anybody. And, mm-hmm. and I thought, just go on Facebook. <laughs> have, a, have a Facebook page where you say, you know, today we're doing this. This is why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And they would say, absolutely not. And the reason why was any website that speaks out, any technology that reaches out is a door in. Mm-hmm. And so to them, they don't want anybody. They don't even like having email. They don't want, they know how we can be reached mm-hmm. and they don't want to be reached that way. So that should tell you something about what they know and how it works and what they're using. If they won't use it, it's because they, they're not on Gmail, then there may be some leaks. Leaky bits. There might be some reasons. (laughs) Mikey. The Chinese Communist Party and the Huawei telecom surveillance stuff is still an issue. And the way that within a smartphone and indeed CCTV technology and all sorts, that your secrets can be taken by another force as such. Is this true? Are we all being watched by China and Russia as we go about shopping centres and things like that or using our phones? Um. I don't. I can't say um, what little I do know, but mm. I, I can tell you using your experience. Well, it's all logical, isn't it? Um, what is there to be gained, mm-hmm. for, in particular, from, for example, hacking my phone? I talk to my husband. Um, I text about my dog. I talk to my publicist and my editor and my friends. There's nothing to be gained, mm-hmm. but there are people. There's a lot to be gained from. And yeah, I imagine they're extremely careful about which phone they use, if they use one at all, um, for anything that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, any door that opens out, opens in. <laughs> As you keep saying, <laughs> not that I'm terrified. Let's say no more. So who gets drawn into the world of modern espionage? What sort of person is attracted to being a spy? Because it's quite difficult in this, the fact that the one person I know who knows a tiny bit about it, who I was a bit suspicious of, was kind of saying, well, you have to just drop everything like your friend mm. and just leave. You can't really have kids at school here or a life that is centred around one particular place. Is that right? I think that's mostly right. right. It's certainly for starting out. So the people mm. I knew who wanted to be spies but were not, mm. and I knew a few, were very bright, very ambitious, easily bored. 
So they wanted this. There's there's no end to the challenge of this. Is there an old school network, though? I think we used to have the idea that it was the private schools that kind of just creamed off quite a lot on sixth form or something like that. Does that still exist or is that so outmoded it's it's laughed at? I think they still recruit, Mm -hmm. but I think... After Kim Philby, that all changed. So it's much more, I mean, you apply. You can still apply if you wish. And they do look for you. They absolutely Mm -hmm. look for you. But I think they also look in other places. They look in the civil service. Mm -hmm. They look in the foreign office. They Mm -hmm. look in the the diplomatic corps. And there, not having kids, not being married, that actually plays against you. So it's great if you're going to be placed somewhere. So that would be six. So if you're going to be placed somewhere by MI6, Mm in the diplomatic corps, then it would really help to have a family mm-hmm. because then you, you're you believable as a right. junior diplomat from, you know, wherever, Birmingham. Yeah. How do they prove someone's patriotism, do you think? Because we do hear tales time and time again of someone who double crosses. Mm. There was a case quite recently of someone who worked for the British Embassy, I think it was in Germany, who was a bit depressed and lonely because his yeah. wife left him and decided, oh, well, state secrets, never mind, and sold a load. Yeah. What can you do to mitigate against that? Or just can't you? You just presume that there's going to be a percentage of spies that just go a bit rogue at some point. Well, he's a surprise, that guy, because the writing was on the wall. Yeah. I mean, he was basically telling the people he worked with, the all but saying, I work for Russia yeah, in my yeah. spare time. That's I'm how I can depressed. afford this delicious phone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it was odd. Um, so I think that will be looked at because mm-hmm. I don't see how that got through. Mm-hmm. But I do believe the method most of the time is the one that was used on me, which is you make a new friend who's very curious about your life. And of course, you know, they check your emails. They're watching you. If you're in that level, you'll be watched. But if you're if you're actually, it's not just unpatriotic, is it? It's actual traitorism. Yes. If you're actually going to do that, go that far, um, then you're not going to put it in an email. So it, the old world, the old ways still work. I mean, that woman befriending me, who I dedicated my book to, because mm-hmm. I based my spy on her, yeah. because she was good. But I felt so gullible. I'd been a journalist for eight years before then. I thought myself quite sophisticated. She played me like a fiddle. I never would have thought, you know, a super cute 28-year-old girl my age, completely cool, very normal, could possibly be anything other than what she said she was. So... That is that's a good method. They have people who are very good at that, and that's all. That's one thing they can do. You can literally tell them mm-hmm. by mistake. Mm-hmm. Why are we so fascinated in literature and in the media broadcast by this idea of loyalty, subterfuge, mm. secrets, and lies? I can tell you what fascinates me. Basically, what spies do is lie for a living. So they they deceive. Mm-hmm. It's a constant state of deception. Mm-hmm. One of the things you have to be able to do to do that is lie comfortably, fluidly, and not feel bad about it. Your morality has to be ever so slightly different. You have to be able to justify it to yourself, especially if, like, as one of the spies I knew, um, absolutely adored his partner, had been married for 20 years, talked about her constantly, um, was a very happy man. She thought he worked at the Department for Transportation. So he went home every day and lied to the person he loved most in the world. And he did tell me, you know, he said, I hate it. I hate that I do that, but I'm afraid if I tell her the truth, then I might say too much or it might cause problems I just can't have. So that ability fascinates us, I think. That's a different kind of morality and the, the bravery of it. Those people have balls of steel like that. I couldn't do that. I wouldn't be able to like that's that you have to have a bravery. And that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. It is, as they say, another level. (laughs) What's the biggest myth about espionage and or spies? 
Oh, James Bond has so much to answer for. Doesn't he? <laughs> you believe James Bond should definitely be a woman in this day and age? Well, now, I know my PR is saying that to people because <laughs> it's catchy. But yeah. what, what I actually end up find myself yeah. saying over and over to her and to anybody who will listen is James Bond is James Bond. That mm-hmm. character is created, invented, and it works. And and people adore him. And he plays a role. But um, if I were to, I, I think there needs to be a female equivalent. There should have been 25, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, Virginia Hall existed and nobody's made a movie about her. And she was the great, possibly the greatest spy of the 20th century. World War II, absolutely fearless. The Nazis' most wanted enemy agent. Virginia Hall operating in France throughout the war. Absolute like terrifying fearlessness. That sort of thing has just sort of been written out of fiction. And I don't know why. In fact, Ian Fleming met her, worked with her. He was a World War II spy. He was one of her colleagues. Mm. And he, women in his books are sex objects mm. or idiots. Mm. So that's a conscious decision. If you meet somebody that clever, mm. that brave, I mean, screw you, Ian Fleming. <laughs> what the, what are you doing? <laughs> I can't think of a better note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. The Chase by Ava Glass is published by Penguin and it's out now. And for those of you listening, there's a new edition of The Bunker every morning. So please do subscribe. And yes, you can back us on Patreon. Just search Bunker Podcast Patreon for extra shows, early access to live events, merch and much more from just £3 a month. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. The Bunker was presented by Shaden Patton, produced by Kasia Tomashevich. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn, lead producer Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, theme music by Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.